Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Cassandra Quave, your host for, of Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Today on the show, we're going to explore an interesting concept that is especially relevant not only to food security, but also to food sovereignty. Um, we're going to be talking about famine foods. Our guest today is Dr. Paul Minnis. He's a professor emeritus of anthropology at the University of Oklahoma and now lives in Tucson, Arizona, where he's a visiting scholar at the School of Anthropology at the University of Arizona. Paul conducts research on the pre-Hispanic ethnobotany and archaeology of the Northwest Mexico and the U.S. Southwest. He has published extensively on ethnobotany with a special interest in food and anthropogenic ecology. He's the author or editor of 14 books and numerous articles. Um, and his most recent book is called Famine Foods, Plants We Eat to Survive. And this was just released last year with the University of Arizona Press. In Famine Foods, Paul focuses on the myriad plants that have su sustained human populations throughout the course of history, unveiling those that people have consumed and often still consume to avoid starvation. For the first time, his book offers a fascinating overview of famine foods, how they're used, who uses them, and perhaps most importantly, why they may be critical to sustaining human life in the future. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Paul. It's great to see you. Thank you, Cassandra. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah. So why don't we just start with the basics? What can you share with our audience about what famine foods are actually are? Well, there are several different definitions. Uh, one of them is the most common one, I think, or people think that it's there are foods that people eat only when they're starving. Okay. And uh, I prefer a broader definition as an anthropologist looking at foods that people eat when there are food shortages. So they can be common foods that are eaten in unusual ways. They can be common foods that are eaten in uh, uh, greater abundance uh, in addition to foods that are uh, only eaten when people are starving. And so there's a range of thousands of these sorts of uh, famine foods. Uh, there is a database uh, hosted by Purdue by uh, Robert Friedman, who uh, <laughs> over decades accumulated 13,000 wow. cards about human consumption. Uh, and he have a subset of famine foods and he lists about 1700 famine foods. Uh, that are recorded to have been used. And this is, I think, an only small fraction. You know, the Kew Garden lists about 28,000 known medicinal plants, and probably higher by now. And that's not all of the known medicinal plants. And I have a hard time thinking that foods eaten when people are starving, plants eaten when food, people are starving, is any fewer than medicinal plants. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, 28,000, 30,000 famine foods in the world is not unusual, and yet we only have really good documentation or documentation of 1700, which is what, 6% or something. So there's a lot to be learned, but it's not just the plants themselves. Uh, it's an interaction of a society, environment, and botany. And so uh, it's not just the characteristics of the plants, it's the characteristics of the human society. So different kinds of societies, given their types of economies, et cetera, and population densities, utilize famine foods in very, very different ways. And to get a fuller understanding of that, that's why I like the definition of famine foods being those things that people eat 
uh, when there are shortages rather than a small subset of plants that are only eaten during famines. That's a, that's a really good point. And I'm wondering, when you think about the context of famine foods over the course of human history, I mean, we've had societies that are more focused on hunting and gathering and societies that are more based in agriculture. Do famine foods play a role in kind of both of those spaces? Um, or are they more of a, something that agricultural peoples would have would have relied on as a secondary source of food? Uh, there have literally been thousands of recorded famines in human history, and who knows how many that have never been recorded. I can't imagine that there isn't a society of any organization that hasn't had mm -hmm. severe food shortages. What that means, frankly, to put it in personal terms, is if your ancestors hadn't have survived a famine, you wouldn't be here. And, mm -hmm. um, and one of the main ways to survive famines is to eat foods that you normally wouldn't eat. So they've been critical for sustaining humanity for a long period of time. Literally famines, every part of the world has had famines. Um, the Western Hemisphere has had fewer numbers recorded, but I don't know if how much of that's just a function of a lack of recording. Uh, and and they, they changed. So Europe had a lot of famines until the 1900s. And then they didn't have many famines until war hit. Mm. Uh, the 19th century, there were a lot of famines in India, et cetera. So they aren't even over time and over areas, uh, but I, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to bet there isn't a society over time that never had to deal with food shortages. So it's, a, it's, the four, it's one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's one of those things people have had to just deal with for millennia. Yeah. Uh, and so it's really an important uh, concept, I think. That's a really good point. I mean, do you, do you think that, I mean, have famines basically, have they shaped human history in some ways? Well, they may oh. limit population to some degree, mm -hmm. uh, but what they make, they, they, they require people to think outside the box of their normal lives. Um, it affects various things. For example, one of the ways that information is passed down is in ritual knowledge. So it involves religion as well. Now think about it. I mean, people learn how to use foods like plants from their parents or their grandparents. And it's a daily occurrence. You have to pretty much eat every day or every two days, whatever. Famine foods, you think about that information could be easily lost, couldn't it? If there wasn't yeah. a, family for, a famine for one or two generations, How's that information perpetuated? So it's a very fragile, I think, kind of knowledge, ethnobotanical knowledge. And interestingly, one of the ways it's perpetuated is in myths, stories, and religious activities. So the Zuni Indians, for example, for their, uh, their ceremonies today, they have a liturgy, a liturgy, which includes naming off plants plus certain plants are important components of the religious practices. It means that knowledge about those plants is perpetuated, not as famines, but as part of important ritual sacred knowledge. And so there's a lots of ways that it, it, it focuses uh, society. It um, now, Nowadays, um, it's a problem because of uh, how dense populations are. And when you look at famines today, it's changed the way you interact uh, between cultures. So. Nowadays, uh, relief, uh, relief supplies are one of the primary forms of uh, famine foods. 
yeah. but they, they always don't work. There are people in Yemen and the Tigray province that are starving today. And while there may be food around them, it isn't available. This is really interesting. So I think it's a bit yeah. yeah. Um, I was just I was just thinking back to, you know, some of my early field work with um, Andrea Pironi in southern Italy. We looked at mm -hmm. liacra, which are wild edible greens consumed by ethnic Albanian populations living in southern Italy. And there'd been this period of transition where at one point, not necessarily from famine, but more of a food scarcity situation, especially during the war, where these 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 were kind of wild foods that were prepared and eaten as a supplement to the diet. But there's also a lot of stigma around the consumption of what would be considered perhaps subpar foods. But then on the other hand, with kind of the resurgence of these um, this interest in foraging, We've seen now things that were once stigmatized as poverty foods, famine foods, things that you would just, you know, collect because you didn't have any other choice to now being celebrated as this kind of foraging, you know, delight. <laughs> so I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Have you seen that in other cultures as well? This kind of. Well, yeah. it's, it's, it's very, very common. There are some there's work in the, uh, Italy, also like Greece mm -hmm. for during the. Uh, uh, world and the World War II and Spain. In fact, there's an article I can't remember where it is that compares knowledge of the use of greens across the Mediterranean, different cultures. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it's really common. Uh, there are there are foods that are famine foods because they are hard to prepare. They aren't very common, or they're tabooed. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are cases, for example, of India of some high class Brahmin women starving to death rather than eating foods that they aren't they shouldn't be eating. Wow. I think that's the exception. I think if when if you read enough stories about famines, people eat whatever they can. You yeah. know, they just have to. And and so a lot of uh, foods that they normally wouldn't eat that were stigmatized, were considered mm -hmm. low class, they'll eat them. And sometimes they'll try to eat them surreptitiously where people can't see. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think they'll eat them. Um, so and it is it is wonderful how nowadays uh, local foods and exotic foods are have a cachet where perhaps for our parents or our grandparents there were things to be avoided. Yeah, as we avoid Jello right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was, that's a great point. Yeah, a lot of the the kind of nineteen fifties uh, <laughs> processed things. Um, well, one question I have is that I think I'm sure some of the audience might have is, could you? give us a bit of detail about around the characteristics that famine foods share. Are they undesirable because they're difficult to process? Do they not taste good? What are some of the, why are they differentiated from things that we do want to actively eat versus things that are kind of as, as a back burner option? The answer is yes. Uh, but a longer <laughs> answer is uh, they can be not very nutritious. Mm -hmm. So it's not uncommon for people to grind up corn cobs and use that uh, to extend uh, wheat or flour. Corn cobs have almost nowadays no nutritional value for humans mm. uh, at all. So there are plants that people eat that just don't have much nutrition. But one could argue that some nutrition or a sense of satiety, mm -hmm. uh, which is important for people who are starving, uh, people eat those things. Um, there are foods that are uh, despised for cultural reasons or for religious reasons. There are foods that uh, are, are take a lot of work to prepare. 
they can either be poisonous mm -hmm. or they can be bitter and taste bad and they require some kinds of uh, manipulation. Uh, they can also be, be really low density foods that people wouldn't normally get because they're just not around in an, enough of a density to collect. They're not worth collecting. But if you're starving, they're probably worth collecting. So there are just a whole variety of cultural and biological reasons why people would not be, eat these things normally. That when they're starved, when they're really facing starvation, they'll eat almost anything. Um, and it's not only just the nutrition, but it's also the sense of satiety. There is, uh, there's a, a kaolin clay in, in China. It's, and there's geophagia, as you know, is fairly common mm -hmm. uh, throughout the world. But there's a special kind of clay people would eat a little bit of. And during the famines, people would eat large quantities of it uh, just to get a feeling of being full. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the clay then basically becomes concrete in the gastrointestinal oh, tract no. and causes all kinds of problems. So it's not just nutrition, but it's also a sense of satiety. Let me give you an interesting example of, and we could talk about this later, is uh, by looking cross-culturally at famine foods, you find out there's stuff that you couldn't imagine is edible that is edible. Mm -hmm. So where I live in Western North America, there's something called tribulus terrestris or goat's head. People hate it. it. If you walk dogs, ride a bicycle or go barefoot, you hate it. It has this um, these nutlets with incredibly strong spines, the lacerate feet, dog's paws and bicycle tires. Mm. People just hate it with a path. And it would really surprise all of us in Western North America to know that these goat's heads or puncture vine was a major famine food in, in parts of Africa and India. You can grind the nutlets up, which really don't provide a whole lot of nutrition according to FAO, but the green plants as a greens are really very nutritious. So here's a plant that nobody in where I live likes it, uh, but it's really been a lifesaver millions of Tons of uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of people's lives have been saved by this plant. Where you are, uh, we have kudzu. Yeah. <laughs> which I don't know. I've never lived in the Southeast. Can't imagine that anybody in the Southeast thinks much of kudzu. It's a horrible invasive mm -hmm. weed from Japan that eats up buildings and trees and everything else. In fact, kudzu roots are a good famine food in Papua New Guinea. And actually they're eaten in uh, Southeast Asia as well. And so... You can learn all kinds of things about plants that you never knew, even plants that you thought in these horrible invasives who really have saved lives over millennia is, is quite surprising. And so there's just a lot to be learned uh, about these and why. So part of that's just ignorance. It's not, it's, people are often ignorant. One other point I'd like to make is when you, there are a number of studies where people have looked at knowledge of edible foods in culturally similar villages nearby each other. Mm -hmm. And what you would expect of is that they would have exactly the same knowledge, but that's not even the case. So not only is this ignorance cross-continental, but it's even in village next to another village that they don't necessarily, a visitor from one village can go over and say, hey, these people don't know there's this thing is edible. And so the knowledge, the knowledge is often very localized, not always, but often. And it, this is why a comparative study of famine foods is important. It opens up a range of possibilities of what eaten, not only famines, that, as we can talk later on, maybe some of these famine foods may have value beyond just feeding people during uh, food shortages. 
Yeah, this is a this is a really good point. We've we've talked a lot on the show about wild crop relatives and their importance for shoring up kind of our genetic our, our gene banks for future um, crop breeding um, initiatives. But I would I would expect that likely there are a number of famine foods that might be crop wild relatives in themselves um, that are kind of in those edible genera. Um, and I want to go back to one point you mentioned about clay because this is interesting. You know, and this is this is a, a food that we have access to really across most of the U.S. And those are acorns. And I've I've read about the creation of acorn bread from the, the nuts that are ground up into a flour. But they contain um, a lot of tannins, which are not great to consume in large quantities. And so um, clay is is added to the bread in some cases or they're leached in clay to help bind up some of those toxic constituents. But most people wouldn't think looking at an oak tree. Oh, that's a great source for me to make bread <laughs> or, or a food that could be yeah. really filling. Yeah. Yeah. Let me mention one thing uh, you just raised, and that is the wild plants being particularly maybe having value in cultivation. Mm -hmm. How about a little tangent here? And this yeah. relates to a previous book I edited. And that is, as we know, there the world is dependent on largely 12 to 20 plants. And people are really we're, we're nervous about that. Putting your, all of your eggs in one basket is not a good thing. And there's literally been over 100 years of people going out and collecting the seeds of, well, poorly known land races and, and storing them in the doomsday seed vault or the corn vault in, in Ames, Iowa, et cetera. So people have done that for a long time. What they don't think about is, and this is where being an archaeologist comes in handy, there are all kinds of crops that we know of in prehistory that are now extinct. Hmm. So the crop inventory of what we know today is not a sum of history because history can be lost. And where you are in Eastern North America, there's, this, there's a whole suite of ancient crops developed in North America, which fed the ancient peoples until corn, beans, and squash, the three sisters became so important in about AD 900. So for thousands of years, they developed these things like marsh elder and others. And those may be valuable. I mean, we know that they have been yeah. domesticated. And so maybe they can be domesticated in the future. Uh, also, in getting back, I was a little aside, but on the same point, uh, uh, Bob Freeman, out of his database, has about seven or eight plants. He, he says, look, these are ones we really ought to look at. That uh, they're, they're known as famine foods. But they have some really unusual or specific uh, nutritional value that might be worthwhile uh, exploiting and either domesticating or using them more. So yeah, uh, wild plants are a major kind of, of famine food and and there is some value potentially for these things in the future uh, as potential domesticates. You know, it doesn't cost much. I mean, we just spent $10 billion sending the web, $10 billion sending the web telescope and God bless them, it's really wonderful. But, you know, anthropologists and botanists work cheap. And, and <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, too cheap. Especially those who go into the field. And so to get an inventory of these ancient crops or modern famine foods doesn't cost that much. It's really inexpensive. Yeah. And I think it, we, we put some effort into it, and I think the rewards might, might pay off. Well, you know, one thing that concerns me is, we, we have this lost knowledge that needs to be recaptured. I mean, from the history of, of foods for sure, but 
what concerns me is the loss of of the people that can do this. I mean, botany programs across the U.S. have just been wiped out. So who's who are you going to send into the field when we're not training the next generation of people that can actually go out and identify and and you know document this kind of information and collect the specimens? That's that's a bigger issue. But yeah, I think we definitely need to have funding to support these kinds of initiatives to, to ensure our food security. We have to be training the next generation of scientists to do it too. Well, one of the advantages with famine foods and ethnobiology, as you know, mm-hmm. is that the places where there's so much of this knowledge exists are places like India and Mexico and China. And it's an inexpensive kind of science to do, and it's in their own country. And so... One thing that struck me, uh, Society of Ethnobiology, when we had our meeting in Mexico, the large number of students mm. that were interested in this. Yeah. And it, it's, it's not an expensive kind of science to do. And so it's kind of fortunate, probably in the countries where this knowledge is still there and extant and uh, easily gotten, there are scholars uh, in India and China mm-hmm. and uh, Latin America who can do it. And so now it's all lost, but it's, it's, it's important. One other point related to this is when I got started in this and reading about famine foods, what struck me is the biologists who do this give a scientific name, maybe a common name, and maybe a little bit of information, but all the cultural context, which is very important, is lost. Mm. And when you read histories and anthropologies of famines or food shortages, it is so frustrating. What, what you hear is they ate bark, weeds, and grass. <laughs> and that's, not, that's not very useful. Yeah. Uh, and so it requires not only botanists, but it requires social scientists of various kinds, anthropologists, sociologists, mm-hmm. historians, and biologists working together with local populations to get both, getting both kinds of information together to get a fuller understanding. And it's, it's a amazing how few uh, reports there are that that do that, that give, uh, you know, detailed biological identifications and information, as well as the kind of cultural context, which is critical for understanding what's going on. Uh, and obviously, it has to be in collaboration with uh, local groups. And, yeah. and and again, that's that's the thing that really needs to be done. It's inexpensive. And uh, there is some as I said earlier, I think this knowledge is very fragile, is more easily lost than most knowledge. And so it's really, it, it'd be good to get on it. Yeah, no, it's absolutely. Not always lost. Well, yeah, I'm thinking it's not about, always lost like, in the, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just saying, you know, thinking about like local, local farm, like stakeholders, communities that are growing different varieties and different land races. I mean, I know that some of these are being collected for gene banks, but I don't know, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know of places that are collecting both the biological, the genetic materials, um, along with the anthropological data on when do they plant these particular varieties or under what conditions, if it's a heavy rainfall year or a low rainfall or if it, you know, all of those details that go into why they select certain, certain varieties in different years to grow. I think a lot of that's missing. Well, there is there is some there is this long this organization in Tucson, mm-hmm. Native Seed Search, okay, which um, uh, has a gene bank uh, of local things in the Northwest Mexico and 
in Southwest United States. And it is very, the, the board of directors is heavily indigenous peoples and they work closely with them. And so it, it isn't just a bunch of botanists collecting botanically interesting things. So they have genetic information, but it's, it's wider, wider than that. I, I see uh, more and more indigenous peoples in North America getting interested. I taught in Oklahoma for 32 years and there didn't seem to be a whole lot of interest in indigenous foods in Oklahoma uh, until I got toward the end. And I must say, I, as an archeologist, I was working elsewhere, so I wasn't doing anything to help the situation, mm -hmm. I have to admit. But at the end, there are a lot of groups, uh, local groups that from the bottom up were starting to uh, be interested in preserving this part of their heritage. The Cherokee, for example, have a whole uh, seed bank that there's some Pawnee women who were uh, corn ladies who were trying on their own to preserve this special kind of corn. And so I, I saw this all over Oklahoma. And, and, I, as, and I think you're getting more and more interest, uh, people interested, indigenous peoples interested, not just in Oklahoma, but other parts of North America in their botanical and, and culinary heritage and are trying to save that. And that can only be a good thing. So uh, I, I'm ever hopeful in that regard. That's great. No, I think that's the best way to preserve knowledge is living knowledge in practice. I mean, that's fantastic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm wondering, thinking about the botany also, how how widely distributed are famine foods? Are there certain plant families that you find are more heavily represented, like the daisy family or I don't know, like bean the, family, the bean family. Basically. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. If you take if you take uh, Freeman's database, which is the best database, uh, what's interesting, there are 190 families recognized. And I think the Kew Garden recognizes what, 440 or so plant families. So even in this small, I think relatively small famine food database, 40% of the fam uh, families, botanical families have at least one famine food recognized. That, that suggests that it's all over everywhere and there are a lot of them. There are some, uh, there are about, 20 of those families where, or 25 of where they're in that database, there are at least 20 species or more. Mm. The one that stands out is the bean family. It had 168 species, not surprisingly. Oh. Uh, but, uh, and there's some that, that uh, you know, are very, have a lot of plants that don't have many famine foods. And there are a few things that have a lot of famine foods and not many plants. So it's not evenly distributed, but the fact that 40% of the known plant families have at least one famine food in this small database suggests that they're just all over everywhere. From tree bark to mushrooms, well, we won't do mushrooms because it's not really a plant <laughs> family, but uh, almost, you know, or I think orchids, there's one orchid or something in the orchid family. They, they aren't really big. And so it's widespread, you know, um, and if people had to look anywhere to start with, it would be, uh, they'd be looking at uh, the bean family. There's a lot of regional variation too. So if you look at the site in that famine food book, I obviously couldn't cover the entire world. So I looked at 14 case studies. And for example, if you look at the circumpolar area, mm -hmm. berries, plants aren't the most important thing in the circumpolar area. There's, they're, they're meat and fish eaters, but um, you know, berries are the particularly important famine foods. Um, Whereas in other areas, it tends to be seeds and fruits, uh, not berries. And these are obviously popular terms, not botanical terms. Um, and in China, it's greens, incredible number of greens. Mm -hmm. 
are, are known. So there's regional variation, obviously in the area I work at in the Southwest and Northwest Mexico, uh, cacti, succulents. Interesting, uh, yeah. Are particularly, are particularly important. So um, they're, they're all over uh, botanically. I think, you know, they're probably the majority of plant families have famine foods because we know that 40% do. Uh, but that uh, it all varies on the basis of the environment and also the culture. Bark, bark is really important in the subpolar regions. Like if you go into Scandinavia, bark is an incredibly important. In fact, the recipes for bark bread never made any. Wow. Uh, but bark bread, is, you can get on the internet and look up bark bread and there are recipes for bark bread. Wow. But other people use bark as well. You know, the cambium is actually pretty nutritious. It's, it's a lot of work to collect, I think is the big problem. But it's, uh, cambium is actually very, very uh, nutritious uh, plant part. It's, you have to get rid of the bark and it's a lot of work to get a little bit. But you know, say up in Sweden and Finland and Norway, bark bread um, is a part of the cultural heritage and was an important food family, which food fan, uh, food, which uh, famine food, which I don't think most of us would think about. That's a really good point. To this concept of famine foods, when we think of someone that's starving, I guess the image that comes to mind in my head from, you know, movies and things is like you're out, you're foraging, trying to just eat things raw, right? But it sounds like many of these famine foods are actually processed in some way, either through cooking or kind of cleaning them up and preparing them in different ways. Is that accurate or are these, are these primarily transformed into another kind of food from the base material? Well, I think a lot of it, it depends on, on what, I mean, if that's all, you, if, if all you have is something requires a lot of transformation, then you're going to do it. I think one of the other things that's important is how severe the famine is. Um, you know, when you first have, or, or just a, a severe food shortage, uh, mm -hmm. when you first have it, you may have some effort and community efforts to, to do things and you have, but when you really get down to the very, very worst, just before people die and a lot of folks don't have much energy. And so it's hard to forage yeah. long distance or do a lot of processing. And so that's why I think you need to look at this as a process and, uh, and, and view that, you know, a famine isn't just people are eating really well and then they're nearly dead. It takes a while and people adjust their, um, their strategies, whether it be migration or using various kinds of famine foods, some that require processing, some that don't. Um, is depend on sort of the condition, uh, you know, and processing food, as you know, is, I mean, uh, Tim Johns is, you know, I think, what is he, he has 160 plants that are very common foods that are toxic mm -hmm. or something like that require a yeah. lot of processing. So people, people are really used to, uh, uh, manipulating plants, grinding them or leaching them or whatever to get the mm -hmm. stuff out that they don't want to eat. So it's a part of the human repertoire of, of survival. And yeah. they use this in food shortages as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think in my I teach a class at Emory called Food Health and Society. And when we talked about the processing of foods, I think that many people have this different 
perception of what it means to process a food because we think of it in the industrial context, but actually it's, you know, in many societies, it is the act of roasting or boiling or grating or leaching or pounding or drawing, fermenting, all these different things you can do. To all, of the above. all of the above, some mix of all of the above, you know, and I'm a huge fermentation fan as one of the transformation methods because, you know, it just yields so many value added products um, that store so well. Right. Um, but even the act of drying can help re reduce some of those toxic constituents depending on the species and also add to like longevity of the food product kind of, yeah. So lots of interesting um, principles there as well. Well, I mean, um, you just have to mm -hmm. go ahead. You just have to think of uh, manioc or cassava, which feeds hundreds of millions of people in the tropics and what they have to go to, to get the, uh, the hydrocyanic acid out and just get a good edible starch but people do it and this it's a major crop for folks so it's uh it's part human humans know how to do this mostly so yeah. there are examples there are examples of of people being poisoned eating unfamiliar foods i think a lot of their sort of mimics people often migrate during food shortages and they come across to biota that's somewhat a little bit different than what they're used to and they see a plant that looks like something you think is edible and they eat it and they get sick or die. So there are examples. It doesn't happen that often, but there are examples of people eating mimics uh, that are poisonous. So knowledge is not perfect, as we all know. And there are examples of people dying because of eating things that they shouldn't have eaten. Well, this, this kind of ties into a question I often get from people. I, I'm often asked, you know, how did how did humans over time figure out which plants could be useful as foods or medicines? And I'm wondering what your perspective is on this, um, knowing what you do about famine foods. Like, what are your thoughts? People just try stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you try a lot of stuff, stuff. Some things don't taste good, and that tends to be an indication. It may not be really good for you. Uh, experimentation, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't, it isn't as if people try stuff and then half the people keel over dead from trying it, but there are, you know, chemical and taste clues about uh, what are edible and what's not edible. Um, and, and so, you know, I think it's just a lot of experimentation. I mean, as an archaeologist, I think, I think in terms of thousand years or 10,000 mm -hmm. years, and then that's a lot of experience people going out and trying to make a living and learning from others. Uh, and so I think it's, it's nothing very fancy. It's just people are experimenting, trying different things, find some things work, some things don't work and going from there That's for great. the most part. So what do you think then the future of famine foods is like based on where we are now, where, where do you think we're going in the future? Well, it would be very nice if we no longer had any food shortage, now wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, With monocropping, and, and, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're going to definitely have more food shortages with disease. Well, it's going to be that and uh, conflict. I think I think uh, yeah. most of the really bad famines in the 20th century are based on, on war and conflict mm. and um, or bad economic policy. Uh, so, for example, the famine during the Great Leap Forward in 1958 to 1961, which isn't that long ago for many of us, um, yeah. killed 20 million to 30 million people in China, wow. uh, mainly for, there were some environmental reasons, but it was mainly just really stupid, stupid economic planning. 
Uh, and it's the same kind of stuff that happened in Russia with uh, in the 1930s with the Kazakh famine the, uh, and the famine in Ukraine called the Holomador. So basically they, were, they did the same thing. And these were conflicts or bad political, uh, political decisions. And if you look at World War, if you look at uh, Europe, by the 1900s, there were very few famines until World War I and World War II, and then all hope hell broke loose and there's just been so mm. I think it's uh, it, those are the considerations of there are issues of monoculture and increasing population but I, and I think that all leads into conflict between people and the lethality of war and what that does particularly to civilian populations and famines are very common in fact the last oh what was it four case studies I do are looking at urbanized states at war the Netherlands and uh, Siege of Leningrad is really a, a sad thing to, to read about. Oh, yeah. uh, Netherlands, which is the most interesting example in Greece. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so the future, so the point is, I'm not a pessimist, but you know, the famines have been with us or food shortages for a long time. They're going on right now. As I say, Yemen had a, a serious problem. Tigray mm -hmm. province in Ethiopia is getting on to uh, people's uh, cognition. There were even uh, starvation during the Bosnian War in 1990. So, you know, it's if international relief can get to people, it can help, but that doesn't always happen. So I think food shortages are always going to be there. And I think collecting the information potentially offers maybe not a great solution, but one of the strategies people can use to survive. And also it gets with food sovereignty. This isn't just outside knowledge this is local knowledge that people themselves mm -hmm. can control so i'm not arguing the use of famine foods will solve short of famines and death but they're one tool in the toolbox that i don't think has gotten enough uh play in addition for the future is some of these plants uh, may be um may be useful in foods as you mentioned earlier they're among wealthy places uh local non cultivated indigenous foods are really kind of popular and in and hip, whatever mm -hmm. the term is nowadays. I'm dating myself. Um, <laughs> and some of these foods might make a perfectly interesting uh, food. There's a wonderful example. I can't remember the specifics, but there are two famine foods in Laos uh, that were particularly mentioned. And one of them has become a really hot, popular item in some of the upscale uh, restaurants in Southeast Asia and Australia. And I wish I can't, I can't remember which plant it was. Uh, so there may be some future there, and some of these things may be able to be cultivated and provide a, a, another layer of breadth to the kind of food base that humanity needs to to go into the future. So uh, there is a, I think there's an important there's a, there's an important future for study of famine foods. Um, it's not a solution to anything, but it's part of the solution, and it doesn't again it doesn't require a lot of money or effort or mm -hmm. work. It requires people, and people are cheap. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, requires, it requires people, and it's simple and uh, and collaboration. Uh, and we need to get this before populations just become so completely urbanized that they have lost really strong connections with local um, local, uh, local traditions. So, for yeah. example, let me give you an example. Like Papua New Guinea, there is a famine. I, I can't remember the 1990s, a, a food shortage. And people in the highlands, 90% of them used famine foods. The people in the urban area, like Port Smores, the only 50% did. And so that's just a kind of a statistical indication about as things get more urbanized, 
we lose kind of the close botanical connection we have with local environments and knowledge. And we don't want to, we don't want to lose that. We want to get that information as, 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 as fully as we can. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. I mean, the, the connectivity that we have or the lack of connectivity to nature and to these resources, I think definitely declines in those more urbanized um, environments. I mean, the sad truth is today, many people couldn't recognize a crop plant of some of our common vegetables and fruits if it doesn't have a big fruit hanging off of it. I mean, we're very separated from our food, our food systems um, today within the industrial food system. Um, but, you know, this this leads to the, the, the last question I have for you, Paul, is, you know, thinking about all this and, you know, in recognition of the incredible importance that famine foods have had for human throughout human history and the inevitability of future food shortages of future famines, as we've seen time and again over history, it's going to happen. Um, you know, what can we do to raise awareness about famine foods, particularly those famine foods that might be, you know, relevant to certain regions of the world. So like regional databases, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on how to increase awareness of how to identify, collect and, and transform these, these resources into food? Yeah, it's incredibly frustrating. If you look up Amazon and type in French cuisine in books, you get thousands. Mm -hmm. People are interested in food as nutrition, as, as a pleasure and absolute pleasure and as a part of identity but not as survival. Mm. Um, and so I don't understand why this has been ignored for so long. Um, I, that's one reason I did the famine food book because I wanted a broad comparison, a comparative study of famine foods, maybe to get some juices flowing. There are some people who are more and more getting interested in this. There is the most wonderful famine food book is called the Zhuang Ben Cao and God forgive me for my pronunciation of Chinese. <laughs> it was produced in 14, late 1400s by Zuzu, the Prince Zuzu, uh, Henan province. It's a list of 414 famine foods. Oh. It is the most unbelievable piece of work. And not only did he do that, and his son continued it, uh, but he, uh, he, had a, he had gardens to test some of these and grow them. It is for something in the 1400s, it's just absolutely unbelievable. And I always wonder of all of then following famines, did any of that information get particularly used? Did governments, for example, provide that information to anybody? Mm. I, I don't know. But the one thing that's hopeful is there have been two new uh, reprints of Xiao Ben Kao, Jiang, well, Jiang Ben Kao. Uh, don't ask. Don't ask me to spell it. Uh, <laughs> in uh, published in China, and okay. I think the the movement of interested in wild foods, even though it's not directly famine foods, you know the Yule mm -hmm. Gibbons and the survivalists, all mm -hmm. of that. People are, are more and more interested in not in in wild foods, not so much as the main source to eat, but as something that's interesting and different. Yeah, and then that. We can be transformed into potentially eating. It's a bit of a problem because you take in Tucson, where I live, there are a million people in the in the Tucson, greater Tucson area. And if there was a famine here, how much do you think a million people could easily forage without completely destroying it? So it's there are yeah. issues there. 
But um, I, in China and in India, I know the Society of Ethnobiologists of India, there are various people who have focused on famine foods among particularly tribal groups. Mm -hmm. What frustrates me so much is when I read about famines, so much of it is the political economy, like market considerations, the price of rice, and those things fluctuations. And that's absolutely critical. But I wish people spent one-tenth of the time they spent on market, economists spent on market uh, situations during food shortages and would actually look at some of these alternative foods. So I think there's some small, there's, a, there's not a lot of direct interest in famine foods, but there are things like foraging and other sort of tent or refining, rediscovering uh, traditional heritages mm -hmm. that tangentially relate to broadening the food base and, and famine foods. So I don't know how hopeful I am or how pessimistic. I, I think clearly it could use more interest mm -hmm. and I, I hope the book, and I hope uh, Bob Freeman's database does that, but you never know. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be amazing if there were like a popular TV show or something that could get capture human interest around this, because I mean, it is a fascinating thing to think you can go out into nature and find things that like, like this very pokey um, plant that you were mentioning that's, you know, stabs into your feet and your dog's paws. Like the fact that you can take a pest plant or something that you may encounter every day and just be annoyed by it, but to realize that it actually has some great utility as a food source. I mean, I, I think that, that could be something people could connect to. Um, yeah, we need to have more of that kind of, of education in the media. And I don't know what the right right avenues are for it. Maybe a TikTok stream on edible foods. I don't know how to reach more people these days, but there's got to be a better way, you know, because the reality is I think that while scholars will definitely look into databases and hopefully government organizations and nonprofits will consider these general, I think general consumption of this knowledge is, is at a, is pretty low. So like we've got to find a way to reach out to more people. What I would like to see is, and is, it, it would not be hard for governments to gather this information and mm -hmm. in times of need to, to disseminate this information. Yes. So mm -hmm. Dutch hunger famine, 1944. Uh, do you realize what one of the major famine foods were? It's obviously, once you think about it, tulip bulbs. Really? I mean, here you yeah. Have, yeah. A country that does ornamental bulbs, and I can, I don't know this, but I imagine during the end of World War II, there wasn't mm -hmm. much of a market for tulip bulbs. Yeah. People can eat them. And the Dutch government put out um, brochures about how you can prepare tulip bulbs and other kinds of bulbs to be eaten. Of food. Um, and mm -hmm. the, the thing that's a little hesitant back uh, about that is there's probably the best study I've ever seen on famine foods is, is on the Dutch hunger season, some biologists, uh, botanists, went through diaries and all of that and, and listed the famine foods that were used. And they have a list of about 70. Mm -hmm. And then they interviewed people 70 years afterwards who were young kids during the famine and what to see what they remembered. And they remembered maybe 20 or 30%, 40%, I can't remember the number of the, of the foods that were on that list that were, came from diaries and governmental mm -hmm. reports. The thing that gives me a little pause about pushing governments at doing, having this information and providing it is the people 70 years later, almost none of them remember 
for the government doing anything. They learned it from their neighbors. It was common knowledge, even though the government did provide uh, brochures and information about how to prepare all these um, alternative foods. So I would like governments to do that, but that one case study kind of suggests maybe you got to be kind of careful. Maybe word it's going to be not as uh, effective as. So I don't. I I don't know. You know, when you got a place, when you got a country like ours where people haven't had a famine for. I don't know how long ever. Probably I don't think. I, you know, the Great Depression mm-hmm. was the worst economic situation. And I don't, I'm sure people died of starvation, but it wasn't mainly, that wasn't, a, that wasn't that common. And so we haven't faced, so people don't think about it. Why would we think about something that is not in our cultural repertoire? Yeah. Uh, so I don't know how you get past that. I think it's easier when you're in places where people actually have had serious famines and people have died. In the Kazakh yeah. famine of the 1830s, a million and a half Kazakhs died. They didn't, they didn't become the majority in Kazakhstan until 1990 because of the death rates. And wow. some of the people, we have a friend who is uh, our age, and she remembers her grandmother talking about what she ate, eating rats, for example. Mm-hmm. And so I think people who have a, a reasonably a history of famines or where it's a part of the identity, like Ireland, I mean, the famine was a famine of 1846 was a a seminal history, part of the history of Ireland and people remember it. Uh, But I think in the United States and Canada, it's, it seems so removed. Yeah. I mean, we worry about toilet getting, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, (laughs) toilet paper getting hard to find. I mean, that's, that's sort of the level of first problem we're dealing with. Yeah. It's hard to break through that. Yeah. I mean, the, the Irish potato famine is a great example of monoculture of having a single, you know, clone that was wiped out by a, by a, a plant pathogen that definitely right. impacted human migration and they, and the, and the, the future of that, of that country, um, in, in, in ways of that have continued for a very long time. You know, I, I guess one thing I do want to dive in before I sign off thinking about rats and thinking about foods that are beyond <laughs> plants, but foods that we yeah. normally would view as being completely perhaps disgusting through our cultural lens. And I'm, I'm thinking in particular of entomophagy and the consumption of, of insects. You know, this is also one of those interesting topics where, you know, in certain cultures, consumption of insects is 100% normal. It's part of the diet. There's no problem with it. And it's mm-hmm. actually a great, you know, creates nice small economies um, for households that cultivate them. And there's, there are beginning, you start to see some of these trendy, you know, chefs that are starting to feature some insects on the menu, but it really hasn't taken off. I mean, do you think that insects could play a role in helping combat famine? Um, or do you think like, in, well, especially in the U S they're just so against it. It would, it, would, it could never happen. People will eat, people will eat almost anything, including their examples of eating insects. Mm-hmm. I do remember a number of ethnobiology meetings where somebody would get up and talk about how insects are nutritionally a food, they're sustainable, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And we're all smiling and go, uh-huh. And that's it. <laughs> um, I mean, the biggest, the biggest, I mean, one of the first things you see with famines are dogs and cats are missing. Oh, okay. People eat their pets. Wow. And, um, and then when get, things get worse, they eat other people. There's a big argument. Some people argue that a lot of the discussion about cannibals, it really hasn't happened. But I, I think the 
evidence is overwhelming that, you know, people will eat other people. And frankly, why not if they're dead? Now there is murder. People will murder and eat them. And that's a different area. But if somebody's already dead mm -hmm. and eating them can keep people alive, as disgusting as it is, it happens. And I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to think that that's a particularly bad thing. So, yeah. uh, you know, rats, insects, snakes, all kinds of things that may not be considered edible, people will eat. It is like when you read about famines, it is, it's just, it's uh, especially the really, really serious ones. It's just unbelievable. Human society falls apart mm. and people just will do what they can. It's, it's, it's awful. And, and it's something that those of us have never experienced really, really, we can intellectually understand it, but we just can't really, really it. understand it in a human level. I think it's beyond us. Yeah. There's a book I read in one of my college anthropology courses. It's called Kuru Sorcery by Linenbaum. It's it's about cannibalism mm -hmm. in Papua New Guinea. But it was more of a, a ritual funerary practice that women would consume yeah. the relatives because they were so protein deficient. But also it led to, you know, basically the, the human version of mad cow disease, of prion disease, right. eating right. like the brains right. and things that book has stuck with me. I mean, it's been 25 years since I read that book. And I like, oh, it was so shocking to me as like an 18 year old college student to be, you know, but it, it, yeah. <laughs> well, this is why when we teach sort of anthropology as I did for 30 years, we use that example because um, it, it really shows that people often have different ideas. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, it's actually in those societies, consuming the brain is helping that person the, the deceased person be maintained their spirit mm -hmm. in their descendants. Yeah. Something that that's we would view it. Consuming dead people in famines is a very different matter. In fact, they'll dig people up sometimes from graves. Um, wow. So that's a very different situation, but it's food. And uh, as I say, I think in most cases, not to be too uh, cynical, is people eat whatever they can if they have to. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe that's that an thing? argument to learn about more plants so you don't have to <laughs> eat your pets. Great. Well, this has been fascinating, Paul. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. And again, for all the listeners out there, definitely check out his latest book. He's got a number of really fabulous books um, along these domains of ethnobiology, but his latest one is Famine Foods, Plants We Eat to Survive, which <laughs> offers some really great case studies on um on these famine foods so, so and check out the yeah. check out robert freeman's database famine food just google famine foods purdue and uh it's the Great. largest database you can see awesome i'll definitely be doing that I, i've got to beef up on my local famine foods <laughs> okay. go to you, mcdonald's yeah yeah <laughs> You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. I want to send a shout out of thanks to our producers at Co-Conspiracy Entertainment, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth for producing this show. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in each week. You can find this and all of our other former episodes at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also catch the video version of this um, episode at the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. And of course, remember to click subscribe to wherever you listen to the podcast and your favorite streaming services. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.